Hello, I'm John Chambers, and welcome to another episode of Chambers Talks, my LinkedIn podcast. We're going to switch things up a little today. I usually love talking about text disruptions and leadership. Uh, today, we're going to talk about not just how business is transformed, but also how areas such as uh, college football and coaching a college football team is so similar to what we as CEOs do in our business lives. Uh, I'm honored today to be with Coach Neil Brown, the head coach of West Virginia University, somebody that I believe uh, has an amazingly great future in front of him and making such a difference for my home state and the attitude and the confidence with which our state looks to the future. Uh, we will focus on the similarities uh, between leading a company and Division I uh, uh, football team. How do you build cultures? How do you get your strategy together? How do you create the right environment for not just winning, but something you're proud of and goes beyond just the time that people are in school? So, Coach, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It will be a lot of fun. Well, John, thank you for the invite. Um, I'm honored, especially after looking at the the people that have came before me on this podcast and, and look very, very forward to our to our conversation today. Well, I'll try not to let you down, sir. <laughs> uh, I think many people might be surprised between the uh, the role that you do. And we were talking earlier about uh, Coach Zeski and and what he did at Duke over uh, decades uh, and what makes for a great company and a great leader of a great company. It often starts with a person's background. Uh, their family, what's important to them in life, what are some of the lessons they learned as they were growing up and, and becoming uh, uh, leaders uh, in the future. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, your background? What are some of the values that perhaps shaped over uh, your early years of life? Well, I come from a family of, of educators, and, and I'll definitely echo what you said. I think that um, my path to this point in my life has been directed um, through their focus on education. Um, my mother was an elementary school librarian. Um, I had her in kindergarten through fourth grade. Um, I went through a brief time in my schooling where I didn't have a parent in the building, uh, fifth through eighth grade, and then my, my father was a high school principal. Um, and on top of that is three out of my four grandparents uh, were teachers. Um, my, my father, or my father's father, uh, my grandfather, uh, was a very successful coach um, in the state of Kentucky. And he was a principal and a superintendent. Uh, and then my dad uh, was a successful coach before he turned into a principal. Um, and then on top of that, I married a teacher, John. So my wife, uh, she stay, she's staying home with our kids now. Um, but she, she her degrees in teaching, and she taught for about seven years um, before our youngest, uh, was our, before our oldest was born. And so most of my upbringing, I was – I spent in schools. Um, I really did. Um, and an athletic background as well. Um, and, and I really, I say this and, and I don't, I don't mean this lightly. I think um, the being around athletics taught me so much about life. Um, and, I, and I think about the experiences I've had and I coach football now, but Almost every experience and every person that I've come in contact has been directly connected through athletics. And so my dad, um, he he was a fixer. He would go into schools and fix them. Um, and he, one of the ways that he would do this is when he took over a, a new project or a new school system, he would go in and he understood that that schools change communities. 
especially in small towns, that the identity of the of the community is so tied in to the school. And he would go in and the first thing he really invested in were extracurricular activities, athletics, band, um, things for the, the kids to do outside of a normal school day. And what he found is the pride that grew through those extracurricular activities turned into pride for their per- personal pride, which included academics, appearance, things like that. And then the success of those extracurricular activities drove success through the classroom. So they, the, the test scores were better. And then the pride in the school, everyone in the school grew the pride in the community. And as I watched that and, and the older I got, the more I understood that I felt like that, that coaching was something that, that I could do the same. I, w- I didn't have the skills necessarily to be in a classroom. Um, but if I think about, okay, why did I get into coaching? It's number one, I wanted to be part of a team. Number two, okay, be, and, when I, and I go back to that. Being part of a team is being you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. The yes. second thing is I wanted, to, I wanted to be a part of developing young people. And then the third thing is I wanted to be, have the ability to create change. And what a platform being a coach is, especially at a place like West Virginia. You know, it's exciting. Right after you got named and we were all excited uh, uh, with you uh, coming to our state and representing the the leadership in our state. I was halfway around the world in India and in New Delhi and and I was there and another American came up to me in a major government event and and he introduced himself and he was the chancellor from Troy University, which is the school that that we were fortunate enough to uh, have you join us from where you were a head coach there and an amazing job, by the way, uh, in terms of the programs you built. And he came up to me and he introduced himself and I thought he was going to beat me up about, you know, West Virginia is doing uh, uh, one of their their top uh, stars and, and uh, leaders at the university. And he did the reverse. He basically said, John, I, I just want to share with you uh, that you've got an amazing leader joining your state. Uh, he will He will build great football programs but he will make everybody proud in terms of uh, his culture, his class, how he represents, what his teams represent, et cetera. And his influence will go way beyond the football programs. And I've never seen somebody who has just lost somebody that was so important to them in terms of the leadership uh, do it in a way that just really talked about an individual like that. And clearly they, the belief and the uh, affection that the whole university had for you uh what 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 made that happen at troy and and please don't be modest because that people just don't say those type of things very often especially halfway around the world on it what was it that that you did that really connected you so much to uh the university to the people to the leadership etc and the students well first of all chancellor hawkins i, I firmly believe is one of the best uh leaders in the education um uh, really across our country. Um, he took a, a university that was, that was failing and he's been leading it now for 30 plus years and really amazing. And I think, is, and I'm sure it's the case for you is as you go on your path, there's always been people that helped lift you and help grow you. And, and Jack Hawkins Jr. has been one of those mentors for me. Um, in, in, at Troy, it was the right place at the right time. And if I had to pinpoint one thing is, is my family and I, um, I took I took the job at Troy and my wife was eight and a half weeks pregnant. I mean, eight and a half months pregnant. And uh, and so we've been there uh, as an assistant coach for four years. And 
my wife, Brooke, and our three kids. I have a 13-year-old now, Adeline, a 10-year-old, Ansley, and my son, who was born shortly after taking the job, is six. And we invested in that community. Uh, we invested in the people. We invested in the university. And we dreamed big. Um, you know, Troy University, there's approximately 8,000 students on that campus. There's 12,000 in the town, John. I mean, it's a, it's a small town. But we dreamed big, and we were able to go into – LSU, we beat LSU at LSU. We beat Nebraska at Nebraska. We almost beat Clemson at Clemson. And we're able to take that group, all right, and really raise it to a level that created tremendous pride. And we did that by really trying to remain humble and and, and really connected with the people there and just a special time. And I think that relationship with Troy University – the relationship with that community and the people there, like Dr. Hawkins, that's something that's always going to be there. And if I had to, why, why did the people appreciate us? I think we added value. We added value to the community. Uh, we added value to that degree. Um, and, and, and I appreciate those words he shared with you. Um, but the feeling I have for Troy is, is extremely strong as well. Well, you know, it's fascinating that, the years that uh, you beat uh, LSU, beating LSU in their stadium, which they call Death Valley, is yeah. almost impossible. And uh, you beat Nebraska and came so close to beating Clemson when they were national champions that year and undefeated uh, in what their stadium's called Death Valley as well. Uh, how do you get a team in a university to dream what's possible and to dream big? And how do you take them into a hostile, very tough environment like many business leaders that are listening to this podcast uh, do periodically during their career? Is there unique approaches that you have that get people ready for that and the inner confidence and the, the collaboration? You know, how, do, how do you prepare for those type of games? It's about belief. And there's so many little victories you win before you play that big moment. Um, and I mean this. And to me, you look at a football team, there's so many, there, we have a hundred plus players. We've got a lot of staff members, but you have to tackle them on an individual basis. And I think the most powerful thing you can tell someone is I believe in you. Yes. And if you believe in them and you give them hope and you give them a vision, then collaboratively a group of people with belief and with hope can accomplish great things. And that's, that's the way that we approach it. And so we had a group that had a lot of belief, hungry, right? They were humble, understanding that they, had, they still had work to do, but they were extremely hungry to go prove that they were every bit as worthy of playing in that stadium versus LSU versus Clemson versus Nebraska as the people lining up across from them. And so when you have belief, when you have hope, you can accomplish great things. And when we went into those venues is we had strong belief. And then the other thing is there was trust there and we could overcome adversity because we had adversity in every one of those occasions. But the trust that was established between player to player, coach to player, coach to coach was so strong. We were over, able to overcome that adversity. You know, when I listen to you talk, I, uh, uh, it, it's almost like I'm listening to a, another CEO describe uh, their approach to their business. You know, when I've, I have the honor to be coaching and mentoring 20 startups at the present time around the world, 
And for those young CEOs, I remind them they just have four things to do in their job, strategy and vision for their company, uh, to build the leadership team and recruit the talent to implement that strategy and vision, the culture, and then to communicate all of the above. And culture is one that so often people overlook. Yet I think in college athletics, it is understood remarkably well in terms of you know a great program without a, a great culture. How similar are those to the way that you think about it? And maybe if you could share a little bit of the stories for how you you develop the culture and the direction and the strategy and how you differentiate it. Well, I concur with you, John. I think there's a lot of similarities between running a high-level business and running a, a a collegiate football program or collegiate basketball or a professional organization, athletic organization. Um, I, I, I learned a lot of lessons from CEOs like yourself. You know, I've read your book. I've read multiple books of growing business enterprises and ways to accomplish things in the business world. Because I think there's so much that, that marry up. Um, I'll say this too, is my, I have a business management degree and an MBA. And so uh, the lot of the ways I look at things um, are through the lens of, of my educational background. Um, and, I, and I'll answer this. Uh, there's a story. So I was, uh, I, I was very fortunate. Young in, I was very young in my career when I got a coordinating opportunity. I was the offensive coordinator. Um, I got named offensive coordinator in December of 2007. Um, I was 27 years old at Troy University when I was an assistant coach. Um, successful coordinator at Troy and then at Texas Tech and at Kentucky. And I really, I thought I was ready to be a head coach, you know, kind of like every, every young person, whether you're executive, you always think you're ready. Um, and so I finally got an opportunity and I had some near misses. Um, and, and I really believe you get those opportunities when you truly are ready. And so I was, I was fortunate that I was named the, the head coach at Troy on December 1st, 2014. Um, I was 34 years old. Um, and I had a mentor, uh, his name's Jason Cummins that works for a consulting group called Hor Horizon. And he said, Neil, I know you're a doer. He said, one piece of advice that I want to give you before you go, you go down and do your press conference is this, he said, be patient and listen, because we, Troy had gone through, we were, we had a really successful run, um, five bowl games or five conference championships in a row. And then there was a lull there and they only won two games the previous year. So there was something obviously wrong. There was something not going well within the program, um, but I'd been gone. So I didn't know what it was. So Jason really, he said, he said, you, you got to go against your gut. Your gut is you're going to go in and fix it. He goes, you can't fix things that you don't know what the problems are. So he said, have patience and listen. And so that was something that really stuck with me. So what I did is I went in Detroit and I met with every single person um, uh, staff wise that was there. And then I met with every player that was on the team. And I asked them, these are the questions I asked them. I said, what is going well? What needs to sustain? Second thing is what needs to improve in your opinion? And the third thing is, is if you were named the head coach, today, what would you do? What was the first thing you would do? You only could list one thing, right? And so what I did is I just listened and I asked them personal questions too and kind of got to know them. So I took that information and I went with that. And then just like you said, a strategy and vision. And I did the same thing taking over here at West Virginia. I went through the same process, met with the staff, players, sustain, improve, 
named head coach, what would you do? And through those, all right, and the research I've done on my own, okay, here at West Virginia, listen to Dr. Gee, listen to Shane, um, but I developed a strategy and a vision. The one thing in athletics that's a little bit different okay. is the culture and the recruiting of people is kind of done together. And so you have this culture, this picture of how you want to run your program. And we talk about we have a belief system and we have certain things that we believe. And then we have core values, who we're really trying to, to, to what these values are that we're trying to instill in our people. And then probably the most important thing for us is our environment. And so, you know, we have we hire the some people that that on the initial front end of it that probably have worked for us before or understand what we stand for. But then it's about marrying these cultural beliefs up and bringing in the people, okay, whether it's players or staff members that that are aligned. Because that's the thing that's so, so important in our world is alignment. If we don't have alignment from a school president or chancellor to the athletic director, to the head coach, all the way through the staff to the players, then you struggle in our world. All right. But I do believe there's I, th- I think there's there's so many similarities between business and athletics. You know, keying off that and maybe taking a little bit deeper uh, in our technology industry, it is a war for talent. And and canly, the leaders probably get more credit than we deserve when things go well and maybe more heat than we deserve when they don't. Uh, but it, it comes down to those fundamentals we just discussed, but it comes down to attracting the best talent that can play within your system and your culture. Uh, you know, it, at the companies that I represent, we compete for an individual engineer out of Google or, or Facebook or Microsoft or the top PhDs coming out of MIT like their goal because they are. And you can't build a great company and really stay on top for any length of time unless you get talent who fits into your culture. How do you differentiate 120 different schools, uh, a wonderful state of West Virginia, uh, but a small state? And yet you you have shown again and again your ability to attract talent and, and get them to play uniquely together. How do you do that? What, what is your, your secret sauce? I think it's a work in progress. I think it's always work in progress. I'm a, I'm a question asker. Um, and my wife will probably tell you is my listening skills are improving, but they're not as good as they need to be. Um, but I try, I, to question, <laughs> I try to be a question at, asker. I always ask of our staff two questions. I say, okay, every program is doing the same thing. Everybody is, is working out. Everybody's doing nutrition habits. We're all doing player meetings. Okay, how are we doing it better? If everybody's doing the same things, how do we differentiate ourselves by doing it better? The second thing is we're in the Big 12 Conference and always compare ourselves versus our peers. So are we the best in the Big 12 at strength and conditioning? Are we the best in the Big 12 with our nutrition program? Are we the best schematically? And if the answer is yes, how do we sustain it? If not, then how do we improve it? So I think it always comes back to those questions, how, okay? Well, I think in our world, just like in business, you've got you to differentiate yourself. The, the number one thing that we try to do to differentiate ourselves is create an environment that, that our players and our staff want to be a part of on a daily, a daily basis, okay? And the principles that we talk about are these, is we want to have fun, okay? Like, I think it's really important that people have joy in what they do. And so we're intentional about that. 
Second thing is we're, we want to be positive is we're, we're in a group that there's, we're in a feedback. You, there's immediate results. Um, but how do you deliver those is really, really important. And we try to do so in a positive manner. We try to have a positive energy or a positive vibe throughout our, throughout our organization. Next thing is family. When we say family, we're just talking about the intention, the intentional building of relationships. And how do you do that? You, you've got to spend, invest time with your people. And then we want to have a competitive environment where winners are rewarded. And if you, something doesn't go the way that it should have gone, then you've got to grow from it. If you can't grow, then we've got to replace you. Okay. And we tell them up front that, and then we're, we got to continuously improve them and hiring good people and then keeping good people. I think you got, okay, why? How do you, why do you do that? Or why do the employees want to stay with you? And I think it comes back to this is, is people want to be part of something that's successful. They want to be a part of something that they can go home to and feel really good about. Second thing is, is they want responsibility. Okay. They want to, they want to have more responsibility. They, and and the third, and, and, and this is something I think that sometimes people in leadership lose focus on is they want to grow. They, they really want to grow in whatever profession they're in. They want to grow. And so what we try to do here is have a growth mentality. And then sometimes when you grow your employees, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose them. And if they go to better opportunities, that's okay because we can attract really good talent because the people are leaving here and going on to, to – better opportunities, opportunities to be head coaches and things like that. That's, that's how we're, we're, we attack trying to, trying to really attract top talent and keep top talent. You know, the, the strategies are so similar. Uh, it's actually a little bit uh, surprising and scary. Uh, I heard about your fifth quarter program and uh, you know, I've, I've seen many uh, uh, programs that focused on the student athlete and, and really focused on a high graduation rate, but it, it stopped then. Uh, can you share what the fifth quarter program is and why it's important to you and, and how did you decide to focus on it and why? Well, I'll hit the why first is everything we do in our program is with three objectives. Okay, and it's not a one, two, three. It's just these are the objectives of our program, and none more important than the other. All right, we want to win. We want to graduate our players and then place them, hopefully in the NFL. If it's not in the NFL, it's in, in some type of employment of their choosing. And then we want to develop men. That's the three objectives of our program. Okay, well, the fifth quarter program is really about two of those three. It's about developing men and then providing opportunities for placement post playing career, post graduation. And I really believe this is this is why I'm passionate about our fifth quarter program is, first of all, I think we have a responsibility to the student athletes under our care. Is to provide them an opportunity to better themselves. Okay, that's the first one. Second one, here at West Virginia, why I feel really, really passionate and why it's important to West Virginia is there is an extremely strong connection between our football program and our men's basketball program to the university and then the university to the state and its people. And I really believe that we have a strong responsibility to 
the university, to the state, to the people to put quality individuals back into the workforce. One of the issues in our state is keeping our best talent here. And here we are, okay, we have an opportunity to educate, develop, prepare great young people that have executed in intense pressure situations. We have an opportunity to train them and then keep them right here in the state of West Virginia. So often what you focus on, the members of your team, staff, and the student athletes also focus on, uh, you have a concept called accountability teams competition. And again, it was, it's kind of, of new, and I'm, I'm already going to steal several of your ideas and put them at play in my startups. But what did you uh, want to accomplish through that? And can you share with the listeners to this podcast what it is and uh, what's been the effectiveness of it? So we started doing this um, about five years ago, and um, I'm an idea guy. Then we have people that kind of make them come to fruition. And I travel, you know, pre-COVID, I was traveling a bunch and, and going around, and I'm always intrigued by how different programs or leaders, how they're going about it. Um, and so we created these accountability teams, and it's really something for our off-season program. And they go from January right up until we start fall camp. So beginning of our, our playing season. Um, and we started them for this is I think it's extremely important in, in our world that teams be player driven. I, I use this analogy a lot. I think bad teams, nobody leads good teams are coaches led. And then great teams are elite teams are led by the players. And it's all about accountability. And I think it's a coach's job to provide core values and the standards. But then it's the player's job is to hold their teammates to those standards. And so with our accountability team, what we do is, is our coaches and our players vote. We have approximately 100 players on our team. Okay. So we, we choose, you know, and they're elected by their fellow players or by the coaching staff, and we have 10 captains. And then they draft out of that other 90, and we have basically 10 teams of 10, and we score everything. They're able to to gain points for community service, for academic achievements, for awards given. We do team competitions. They can also lose points through poor academic performance, uh, not meeting certain standards. Um, and but they're all player led. And so we started this to really create and develop leaders. And so what we did is by doing this, these teams are made of there's offensive and defensive players on the team. There's all different positions on each accountability team. So that leader is having to interact with different factions that maybe aren't in his social circle or maybe they're not in his position group. And what we try to do is we train our leaders through the offseason. And so on a typical Monday, we call them lead Mondays, have a staff meeting. Then I follow it up with a captain meeting. Then we have a team meeting and then accountability teams meeting. And what we do is we have these themes that I start through the staff, through the captains, through the team and down and down and so on. And because I think the message messenger is just as important as the message. And. One of our 
big themes right now is this theme of we is greater than me. Like we've all, we all are very, very fortunate to, to represent West Virginia and the flying WV logo. And, and that's got to be more important than our, just our selfish pursuits. Well, if that messenger is through one of our players, our starting linebacker, our, our starting quarterback, it's, it's, it's going to be more well-received than it is just from the coach. And so the whole premise of it was, okay, how can we grow accountability while also creating and developing the leaders that we're going to need in the season? And it's been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, we've been able to accomplish those goals. Maybe just as important, John, is we've been able to pinpoint before the season who the leaders that aren't ready, that are not ready to be given certain responsibilities. Um, and then we can kind of back them off before we get into the really important part, which is playing games and getting ready for a season. So often, Neil, how you handle challenges in life or uh, issues that you may not have, at least initially, hardly any control over, uh, sends a message to everyone about your values and cultures. You know, in West Coast, we often say, do you walk the talk, et cetera. During COVID, you and your your wife, Brooke, and your, your kids, every Friday night, I understand, uh, prepared food for your uh, your staff, and they would literally drive up to your house and everybody wearing masks, you'd, you'd drop off the foods to your team. Uh, how did you think about that? And what, what was the reaction? And, and uh, share a little bit, you know, perhaps some of the lessons learned that you got from that and how it affected people. Well, and to be to come clean now, we didn't cook all the meals. We, we did do some catering in that. So I, I will say that. But so we, we have a circle uh, driveway in front of our house. And what we did is um, uh, with all COVID procedures and protocols in place is basically gave everybody on our staff different times and they circled through and we were able to socially distance. And it was all about connection. Um, we were all in separate locations. Um, the, the day the world um, came to a pause was actually my 40th birthday, John. And, um, we were going to take my wife and I were going to come out on the West coast and celebrate um, my 40th birthday going to Napa. I think we were actually, we had a trip planned where we were actually going to, we, you and I were going to meet in person. Yes. Um, and when it shut down, there was no preparation for that. And so what I saw with our staff and our players and people that are really struggling with connection and, you know, I always uh, early on, um, when I was studying leaders, leadership and I, and I really figured out, hey, I, I want to, this is what I want to do. I feel passionate. I read a book and it had a quote by Warren Buffett in there. And it said, people do what people see. People do what people see. And I really think it, that's become my number one leadership principle. And so if our employees, our players are our most important as assets, like how do we show them? Well, we got to care for them. We got to connect them. We got to give them opportunities where we can really show them. And what better way to show them by serving them? And it's the, you know, we were giving them meals and, and they were, it was quality food, but it was really more about the service piece and then informing that connection. Um, and it, it went, it went so far. People were appreciative. Um, I know this, it really helped our relationship uh, with our, with our, not just our player or not just our staff members, 
but also their families because they would come and they were they were in their vehicle and and we would serve with gloves on and bags and we'd stand six feet back but we're able to have conversation there was that connection that was missing so much during that during the quarantine time it was a lonely time and and making those connections really sent a strong message i think to everyone uh we started with characteristics or the roles of leaders and we talked about the vision and the strategy and the ability to dream big you alluded to and I, I really resonate with that very strongly paint the picture of the west virginia football program three to five years from now if you were writing the press release for what would you want it to say and what would be the key elements that you would judge its success on it comes back to those objectives all right develop them in okay are are the people that that we were fortunate enough to develop are they coming back and wanting to be associated with our program are they successful in their communities are they successful fathers are they humble human beings that are giving back and understand very grateful for what they have are graduation rates still extremely high are we doing a great job preparing our players to go into the workforce are we getting positive feedback are those people that are hiring our players wanting to continue to hire our players and then are we winning you know, and and what does that look like? You know, our goal is is to win and compete for national champ, win Big Twelve championships, compete for national championships. But I think the simpler version of that is in in the month of November, we want to continue to play meaningful football. If you're playing meaningful football games with an opportunity to play for your conference championship, that's where you want to be. And I don't think there's a no, I don't think there's any other word that's a better compliment than consistency. Is if somebody is consistent. That means that people know what to expect from them. And I want the people of our state, I want college football fans and just people in general to understand that West Virginia football is consistent. We consistently win. We consistently develop great young people. And then we consistently graduate our players and consistently place them in opportunities for employment. The last question, if I may, uh, Advice, the best advice you ever got. You've referred to it several times. We've hit on the concepts of dreaming big. Shimon Perez, the late leader from Israel uh, that I knew for 17 years, he taught me so much about leadership. Number one, leadership is really lonely. And it is. And I think many people don't realize that until you, you find yourself in some of the challenging situations and you learn about yourself from that. But he taught me how to know you really dream big and no room for small dreams. What advice would you have for the listeners to this podcast or best piece of advice you've got or what you would like to pass along to the uh, listeners? I'll say two things is the first is adapt or die. And I think when things don't go well, it's really easy to make changes. But I think when you're on top of the game, you have to adapt while you're on top. So you adapt or die. And there's all kinds of business examples of this. There's examples, coaching profession, so always adapt and be ahead of the change. The second thing, and this is more of an individual basis, is, is this is something that's really worked for me and I, and I believe in it, is own your morning. And so own your morning. And what I, I think personal care is so, so important. And as leaders, I agree, it, it's lonely. So you have to push yourself to continue to grow. Well, how do you do that? Well, reading, uh, journaling, um, just studying in general, making time for phone calls. So what I've come up with this philosophy is just owning your morning. 
And so on purpose, I don't do anything business-wise before eight because I want to handle all workouts, um, ability to read, taking kids to school, all those things before my West Virginia workday starts. And so, and I think that's so, so important is you have time. Maybe you're not a morning person, maybe in an evening, but have a time that's for you and your personal growth so you can stay at your best, so you can best serve your people. You know, for all the people that are regular listeners to this podcast or the social posts that we do, uh, the terms are, are surprisingly similar. Uh, a philosophy, especially in technology, you disrupt or you're going to get disrupted. Uh, that what can get you in more trouble than anything else is doing the right thing too long and, and failing to change. Uh, Coach Brown, it's been an honor to interview you today. Uh, uh, I now understand even more uh, what the Chancellor Troy said when he talked to me uh, right after you announced your decision to join us. Uh, we're very proud of you, very proud of what you're building. We're very proud of our state, the citizens, and we will become a startup state and a state that we're all excited about changing uh, off of a, a, a fan base and a citizen group that is an amazingly good people. So I want to thank you for today. I want to thank everyone who is uh, listening to this podcast for another episode of Chambers Talks. Uh, I would like to encourage the people listening to take time to rate and review the session, uh, regardless of what uh, a listening platform you have. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all soon in another lively podcast discussion. Neil, it's been a pleasure. I cannot thank you enough. John, thank you for, for letting me join you on your podcast. I appreciate your investment in young people. I appreciate your investment in the state of West Virginia and our university. And I look forward to, to you helping me grow. So thank you. Well, thank you again, Coach. Let's go Mountaineers. Let's go.